right, it's good to be here with you this morning. I am Pastor Seth, and we're continuing today in our series in the Minor Prophets and Lessons from the Minor Prophets. And today we come to Zephaniah. Zephaniah is not a very well-known message, probably, uh, but it is an important one. And there are a lot of consistent thoughts that run through the messages of the prophets because God was communicating with his people. And sometimes we read right past them and we overlook uh, the beauty and the depth of what is there and forget what we can gain from it. And uh, I want us to focus in on this rather short book today, but I want us to think about not only the history of it and kind of the track record of the prophet and God's interaction with him, but then how does that apply to us today and especially how does that apply to our future hope? And the message is entitled, Zephaniah, the Word of the Lord. And I want to open by reading from chapter 1 and verse 1. And then I'm going to get us up to speed on the context and background of this uh, prophetic message. Zephaniah 1 and verse 1 says this, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now the author introduces himself here as Zephaniah. His name means the Lord has hidden or the Lord hides. And he's identified as the son of Cushi uh, and the son of Gedaliah, who was the son of Amariah, who was the son of Hezekiah. Now why does all that matter? Well, it's unique in a sense because it goes back to Zephaniah's great great grandfather Hezekiah it goes all the way back four generations you might remember that Hezekiah was a good king he was a righteous royal ancestor so including him in this line tells us something about the line of people that he came from and Hezekiah at one point in his life was going to die but he pleaded with God for an extension of his life and when he pleaded to God for an extension of his life God gave him 15 extra years. Now, certainly that doesn't always happen, um, but that's what God did on his behalf. Part of the problem was during that uh, 15 years, Manasseh was born, who ended up being the absolute worst king in all of Judah's history. The nation went downhill to what seemed like the point of no return. Ultimately, Manasseh did repent at the end of his life, uh, but that wasn't the end of the story because Ammon continued the idolatry, his son. After that, Josiah follows, and Josiah was a godly king. Now, under the reign of Josiah, there was a spiritual revival that took place. But as it often was with the people of God, there would be this period of revival, and then there would be this period of regression. And that's what happened in their history as well. Spiritual revival came, but it really only amounted to a postponement of judgment that was certain to come. Now, this book was written, uh, as I mentioned here, during the reign of King Josiah, somewhere around maybe 635 to 625 B.C. Uh, and while most prophets are traced only to their fathers, he gives us a longer lineage here, which helps us put it in a time frame. And this prophet is placed last as he was last in all of time 
um, of all the minor prophets leading up to the captivity. So there's some, some significance here. You remember that we've been working our way through the messages of the minor prophets. There are 12 of them in total. And nine of them are pre-exilic. And then uh, three of them are post-exilic, meaning that some of them wrote uh, before the Babylonian captivity, and then some of them wrote after in the return to the promised land and the continuation of God's plan. So Zephaniah, in the line of the prophets, is the last of the pre-exilic prophets, and in a sense, he sums up the message of the previous eight So he quotes many of the words and the ideas of the previous prophets. Obviously, the reason for that is because this was God's word, right? It's God's communication to people. So there's going to be a consistent message, even though the particular historical details would vary some in how they took place. The first words of the prophecy are the word of the Lord. The last words of the prophecy are the Lord has spoken. Now, this is important, and I, and I think it's of central importance, in fact, because the Bible uses the phrasing, the word of the Lord, or the Lord has spoken uh, many times, or something similar, the things God has spoken. Uh, it all means the same thing. And there are numerous examples in the Old Testament of this. So you've got Hosea and Joel and Micah who use the exact same introduction to their prophecies. So understand this, the messengers are human, but the message that was being delivered and is delivered to us as well is divine. The words of the Lord or the word of the Lord is true, it's authoritative, and it applies to us just as it applied to them. God said to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 and verse 9, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. God is the God who speaks through his word and by his spirit. And God is the God who has spoken. Think about how God communicated with people in the record of scripture. God walked with Adam and Eve and he spoke to them. God spoke to Noah and told him to build the ark and to get ready for the flood that was coming. He spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He spoke to Moses and then to Joshua, his successor. And what God does is he speaks his word, he declares it, and he empowers his word, and we are called to proclaim his word. And we're supposed to tell that word with boldness. That's the responsibility of the church and those who are teachers on behalf of the church. And God promises to bless his word. Now understand, what we do with the word of God matters. If we handle the word of God accurately, we communicate it faithfully, then the spirit can work. And God will do great things through his word. But there are people, either because they don't understand the word, or maybe they've not been properly discipled, or maybe because they're false teachers, who use the word and teach it in a way that is not accurate, that is not helpful for the people of God. In fact, it's hurtful for the people of God and leads them astray. Uh, Ken Omer, Omer wrote this. He said, a violin in my hand will get you some squeaky noise, but a violin in Perlman's hand would get you the music of the masters. 
He said, marble in my hand is just a piece of ugly, dirt-covered stone. But in Michelangelo's hand, it got you a magnificent David. A peanut in my hand is just a small snack. But a peanut in George Washington Carver's hand is peanut butter and shoe polish. A basketball in my hand is worth about $29.95. But a basketball in Shaquille O'Neal's hand was worth, at the time, about $30 million. A tennis racket in my hand is a dangerous weapon, but a tennis racket in the Williams sisters' hands was uh, the substance of champions. A golf club in my hand means look out, there's trouble coming, but a golf club in my, Tiger Woods' hand meant many championships. So it all depends on whose hand it's in. We want to handle the word of the Lord with accuracy, with faithfulness, with boldness, with clarity so that we can understand who God is, who we are, and what we should be expecting for the future. And with a few minor adjustments, I believe Zephaniah could stand and deliver the same message today that he delivered here of the judgment on the wicked and the hope for the faithful. And I think he could stand and deliver that message to us in our context today. He pronounces judgment on Judah on the surrounding nations, and then ultimately on the whole earth. But he also pronounces the Lord's blessings on all who will turn to him. So Zephaniah tells of the destruction of his country. Uh, Judah had fallen into terrible sin, as I've already mentioned, under King Manasseh. He's calling for godliness. He's calling for a return to the Lord. So what I want us to do is I want us to consider some themes from Zephaniah, as we've been doing with the Minor Prophets. And I want us to work our way through these themes, thinking about how they apply to the people of that day, but then also how they apply to us today, and then how they will apply in the future, in the day of the Lord. And that brings me to the first theme, and that is the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. Now I want to pick back up reading in chapter 1 and verse 7. And then I'm going to read verse 14 as well. Chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Now verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warriors cry, is bitter. God addresses the people of Judah in a very direct way. He tells them to be silent and to listen to the pronouncement of judgment. Now, it's hard for us sometimes because we're in a world that is uh, continually noisy. We've got a lot of voices in our ears and a lot of things that we're seeing. We've got a lot of distractions, and it's hard for us to, to focus. And he says to these people, listen, you got to get quiet. And you got to listen to what the Lord says. That's not a bad admonition for us as well in our devotional life, certainly, that we should get quiet, listen to what the Lord has to say to us, and understand what he's directing us to do. Some of the people, evidently, have become embarrassed of their national identity. And they loved to dress in foreign apparel. They wanted to be like the worldly nations that were surrounding them. The book mentions the day of the Lord more than any other Old Testament book. And that's saying a lot because it's not a lengthy message. 
but there's a repeated reference to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is, is repeated, and it's also a, a phrase that appears commonly in the books of Isaiah and, and Joel. And the phrase, that day, appears 200 times in the prophets, in Lamentations, and also in the Psalms. So if we find something one time in the Word of God, it's important. If we find something repeatedly referenced even 200 times, then it must be of remarkable importance. Now, a little bit of background on what got the people to where they were and just some kind of some framework of how uh, things were unfolding. You'll recall that the people of God were united as a kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon, who served as, as their kings. And upon the death of Solomon in 931 B.C., the United Kingdom of Israel was split into ten northern tribes. When they separated, they uh, referred to themselves as the nation of Israel, and the two remaining tribes in the south continued to use the name Judah. Over the next 209 years, the northern kingdom continued to be wrapped up in idolatrous worship. Their hearts, their minds, their focus, their affections were on things they shouldn't have been involved with. In 722 B.C., God uses these people called the Assyrians, and he uses these people called the Assyrians as a hammer of judgment. And the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel were taken away to Assyria, uh, largely never to return to their homeland. You can imagine how dramatic it was when this wicked nation overtook them and God allowed it uh, and allowed them and used them to be the instrument of judgment on them. The southern kingdom of Judah continued uh, for 134 years after Israel's fall until they fell in 586 B.C. Those are huge dates if you care anything about Old Testament history at all. Uh, they serve as markers uh, for the whole of the story that's taking place. The fall of the northern kingdom in 722 and then the fall of the southern kingdom in 586. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was wick the wicked king of Babylon, spoiled Jerusalem. And in it, he takes treasures from Solomon's temple. 10,000 of the leading men of Judah were taken into captivity in Babylon. He wanted the best of the best. And he wanted them to influence his society. The national leadership in Jerusalem continued to follow their wicked ways until finally the city was laid siege to and a breach was made in the city wall. And the scripture says that King Zedekiah attempted to escape but was captured and taken to Babylon in chains. Something terrible happened to him. The Babylonians killed him um, and uh, killed his sons in, in his sight rather and blinded him. I mean, it, it's a horrific scene. And then the walls of the city of Jerusalem were destroyed and the temple was burned to the ground. All of the city's treasurers were taken to Babylon. And the remaining leaders of Judah were killed and the rest of the people were carried into captivity. So what would you have left? Only the poorest people. People that really didn't have a whole lot to offer, or at least they didn't think they had a whole lot to offer uh, to the nation of Babylon. And uh, the initial day of the Lord, I tell you all that to tell you this, I believe the initial day of the Lord that's referenced 
took place in Judah's fall to Babylon. I think that was the initial reference. And then the eventual day of the Lord will be, will be fulfilled in the return of Jesus. So here we go again in this whole prophetic uh, calendar, this whole prophetic timetable. You've got something that's coming in the more immediate future, and then you've got something that's still yet to come. That's what's happening in Zephaniah as well. You've got something that's going to take place that's certain, and then you've got something that's still to come in the future in the return of Jesus and the judgment on the nations. Now, here's an important question as we think about the day of the Lord being near or even the idea of it potentially being imminent. When will the ultimate day of the Lord take place? Well, the answer is only God knows. But we do know that the clock toward the end times is ticking and we are moving ever closer to the day of the Lord. So we can say with confidence that we are closer to the day of the Lord than we've ever been. The, the, the clock is later. The hour is approaching. And while God the Father only knows, and while his timing is not our timing, it's something that we need to be prepared for, just as Zephaniah was explaining to the people. They needed to be prepared for what was to come, and then they needed to be ultimately prepared uh, for the day of the Lord in the future. So what does this day of the Lord represent? Well, it represents terror, and it represents hope. On the day of the Lord, all things will be brought into account. Very sobering thought. You just dwell on that for a minute and think about the fact that everything is, that has been done will be brought into account. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 2 and verse 11. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. It will be clear in that day that God is in control and it will be clear for all eyes to see that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Also on the day of the Lord, order will be restored. There's a lot of chaos because of sin. The, the effects of sin have, have ravaged our world ever since the fall of man. It's going to end on the ultimate day of the Lord. On the day of the Lord, all who trust in the Lord will receive joy, and we will celebrate the eternal victory of the Lord. Now, if you know that something is coming, that trouble's coming, or potential disaster's coming, or something that could be damaging to life or property is coming, how do you get ready? How do you get ready? How do you prepare yourself? Well, practically speaking, emergency preparedness is very important. It's a big issue, practically. And certainly during uh, hurricane season, if you're in an area where it's potentially more dangerous, storm preparation is a big deal. Uh, think about uh, Hurricane Adelia that made landfall in Florida recently. Ahead of all that, what did the emergency preparedness people do? They encouraged people to get ready. They said you need a disaster supply kit. Uh, with food and water, with a certain amount of days, whatever you think it might affect uh, your area. And you need first aid supplies. You need to get your important documents in some type of dry box or bag so that you can protect them. You need flashlights, and you need batteries, you need medicines. All the important things, right, to get ready. Emergency preparedness. 
Uh, and if you're able, you're supposed to cover your windows with plywood and protect your pets. And then ultimately, you need an evacuation plan if things go really poorly, uh, rather than, than risking life and limb to be able to stay where you are. If we believe what the Word of God teaches, that the day of the Lord is near, then we should be ready. We ought to be ready. We need to be ready by knowing the Lord, but then we also need to be ready uh, by encouraging one another, by being faithful, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Hebrews 10 and verse 23 to 25 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This speaks to the significance of the body of Christ. It speaks to the importance of being plugged into God's church, of being around other people who look to the Lord in faith. We don't know everything. We don't have a timeline. But we have clarity on what is going to happen. And we need to be prepared individually. But we need to encourage one another collectively. We need to be faithful in the meantime. And we need to do it more and more as we see the day approaching. Listen, now is not the time to fade in your faith. Now is not the time to be a consumer Christian. Now is not the time to be lukewarm or half-hearted as you serve the Lord. Now is the time to step it up and to really engage yourself in the things of God and to be encouraged by His Word and to know that the day of the Lord is near. And there's a second theme I want to show you here, and that is a time of wrath on sin is coming. A time of wrath on sin is coming. Now, let's pick back up in chapter 1 and verse 15 of Zephaniah. And I want to read through verse 18. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 1. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind, and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Now verse 18. Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them. On the day of the Lord's wrath, the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of of the earth. The day is mentioned seven times in verses 15 and 16. It is described in terrifying terms. And the reason it's described in terrifying terms is this will be a time when the overflowing wrath of God will be unleashed. The section draws on the description of the awesome events of Sinai and it anticipates another display of God's mighty power. Now understand, this whole idea of wrath, it's not very palatable to a modern age. Uh, people 
like to deny it and certainly not think about it very much because what the wrath of God speaks to is our accountability to a holy God. God is holy and we are not. But I like what A.W. Pink had to say about this as it relates to the wrath of God. He said, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and his tenderness. Now, the wrath of God, Pink says, is as much a divine perfection as is his faithfulness, power, and mercy. It must be so, for there is no blemish whatever, not the slightest defect in the character of God, yet there would be if wrath were absent from him. We might define wrath as the natural expression of the divine nature. The natural expression of the divine nature. What is the divine nature? Absolute holiness and perfection. It manifests itself against the willfulness of people, against the deliberate, inexcusable sin of people, against the iniquity of mankind. And there are five couplets here declaring the day of the Lord in the verses that we just read in verse 15 and following. Uh, the day will be one of trouble and distress. That's the first couplet. Pressures leading to despair will mark the day of God's wrath uh, upon sin. The day will be one of destruction and desolation. That's the second couplet. The land will be left in absolute ruin. The day will be one of darkness and gloom. That's the third couplet. The thick darkness of the ninth plague in Egypt, you remember, uh, will characterize the inhabitants of the land in that day. And then the day will be a day of cloud and even thick cloud. That's the fourth couplet. Numerous passages connect God's appearance in the Old, uh, in the Old Testament with a dense cloud. And then finally, the day will be, uh, depending on how it's translated in your, in your version of the Scripture, a day of the ram's horn and the battle cry. Um, is, is the way I like that last part uh, is, as far as how it is translated. So that means that fortified cities with the highest of corner towers are just going to crumble. Think Jericho, except this time think in terms of the judgment of God even against people who are supposed to be called on his name. Now, there's an important statement that reveals the reason for all this. You might have picked up on it. But let me focus your eyes and your attention on that in verse 17. Verse 17, the reason for all of this is because they have sinned against the Lord. That's the reason. The reason that the day of the Lord is coming is God will deal with sin. He's going to set things right in preparation for the eternal state. Um, and uh, the day of the Lord is specifically coming. Judgment is coming in it. Because people have sinned against the Lord. The Bible teaches that the Lord is a jealous God. Exodus 13, 34 and verse 14 says, You are never to bow down to another God because Yahweh, being jealous by nature, is a jealous God. Now, his jealousy is not like our jealousy. Uh, our jealousy is uh, almost always sinful. Uh, and it brings up things that, that it shouldn't bring up spiritually for us. But the jealousy of God is pure, meaning that God will have no rivals. It means that you can't put any substitute in the place of God. So whether that's uh, self, 
or other people or things or you name it, you can fill the blank in, God's not going to have it because he is deserving and worthy and calls for our total allegiance. It's a day of wrath because people will get what's coming to them, and that is the just penalty of their rebellion against the Lord. And even people in powerful, fortified cities, even people who have silver and gold, it's not going to do any good. Think about it this way. Human strength or structures or resources cannot withstand God's judgment. So what does that say to us? Hey, don't put your faith in the wrong place. Don't put your dependence on things that are not going to last. Put your faith in God. Trust in Him. Depend on His grace and His mercy so that you're ready. And in that day, all the earth will be consumed and judgment will come upon the inhabitants of the earth. Revelation 6 refers to the great day of his wrath. It's as certain to come as was the devastation of Jerusalem. So we might think about it this way. With eschatological finality, all who are not found with faith in Jesus Christ uh, to be united with him shall be consumed from the face of the earth and judged because of their sin. Every person is already under wrath if they don't know Jesus. How do we know that? That's what Jesus said. Jesus said in John 3, you're condemned already. It's not an issue of, will you be condemned if your faith is not in him? But you're condemned already if your faith is not in him. And the call for us, the only way to escape that future judgment is to place your faith in Jesus. Why? Because he bore the penalty for your sins. He endured the wrath of God on the cross. And the one who died on the cross and endured wrath and was raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, he is the one who will execute judgment in the future. And if you are covered by his blood, if you are in him and his righteousness is in you, if the righteousness of Jesus is, is imputed to you through repentance and faith, then you are declared righteous in him. And your standing before God is certain. It's a done deal. It's already been accomplished. The victory has already been won. So God is calling you not to try to gain some type of victory in your life, but to rest in the victory that Jesus has won. And to know that you can be confident no matter what comes, you can be confident in the future. Here's the third theme. The call is to repent and seek the Lord. Now let's go to chapter 2 and verse 1. Now I want to read verses 1 through 3. Gather yourselves together. Gather together, undesirable nation. Before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff. Before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Seek the Lord, verse 3. All you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. The prophet calls the people to repent and to seek the Lord. What does it mean to repent? Repent is a change of mind. 
that leads to a change of behavior. It means that you're going in one direction and you're chasing after your sin. You're caught up in darkness. You're on your way toward the judgment of God and to experience the wrath of God. You come to the knowledge of the gospel of what God has done for you and his only son. And you turn from sin and you turn to the Savior in faith and you trust in him. That's what repentance is. And it involves more than just being sorry for your sins. And it means more than being sorry that you got caught for your sins. It means a change of attitude that leads to a change of your actions. I think about Jesus and the story of the lost son in Luke chapter 15. The prodigal eventually comes to his senses. He acknowledges his sins. He returns to his father with humility. He changes his mind about his rebellious behavior. And what does the parable teach us about the father? The father is always in mercy looking for his son to return home. He's waiting for him. And what does he do for the son when the son returns home? Even though the son had gotten so low that he's eaten with the pigs, he comes back having lost everything, and his father is ready to welcome him with open arms and to restore him to fellowship with him. He says in Luke 15 and verse 24, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You say, well, that's a nice story. Well, I'll tell you what, it gets even better because it can be your story. If you've wandered away from God for whatever reason, it doesn't really matter the reason, and you feel like spiritually in this moment that you are in a far country, you are separated from the God who made you and loves you and gave his only son to die for you. Your step needs to be to repent and to come home. It's never too late to go home. And Zephaniah knew that time was short, but he also knew that it was not too late as long as these people had breath to breathe for them to cast themselves on the mercy of God. So he says, gather together. That's a collective call to repentance. Now, repentance is seen in the scripture both individually and collectively. So individually for what we've done against the Lord, but then sometimes it's appropriate for bodies of believers, local churches, the people of God. Maybe they've drifted or gotten off track or whatever. Just to say, you know what, we're not, as a, as a family of believers, we're not where we need to be with the Lord. So what we need to do is we need to repent. We need to come together, we need to gather together, and we need to understand the urgency of the message. He refers to them as the undesirable nation. Oh, nation not ashamed. So it indicates that they had no shame for what they had done. They had no embarrassment for what they had done. How could you get in such a deep uh, pit. The reason you can get in that kind of pit is because sin hardens your heart against sensitivity to sin. It, it's like this trap you get in. It's, like, it's kind of like a, a hamster wheel that you can't get out of on your own. And when you sin, it hardens your heart against it. And you start thinking, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. You start con comparing yourself to other people and you start trying to measure yourself up. Well, they're a lot worse than I am. You know, it's like when you share the gospel with somebody and uh, one of the things I've heard probably most 
of all through the years from people trying to talk to them about their sin and about their need for God is, well, I've never killed anybody. I, I've heard I've never killed anybody hundreds of times when I've talked to somebody. I'm not that bad of a person. I've never killed anybody. Well, congratulations. That's not the point. The point is that sin is serious. And those who uh, don't know the Lord need to repent and believe. And those who know the Lord uh, need to continue steadfastly and strive for three things that appear in these verses. And here they are. We already read them. Seek the Lord. Why do you need to seek the Lord? Because there is no hope outside of God. You're not going to find it anywhere else. Seek righteousness. Why? Because there's no righteousness outside of God. And seek humility. Surrender to the Lord. And I say to you that only humility that leads to repentance can possibly lead to salvation and bring you shelter in the day of the Lord. Jesus said in Luke 5 and verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Our daily bread, the devotional has been around for many, many, many years. Ran a piece on a man named Grady. Uh, but in the story that they ran, uh, this man went by the name broke. Now, he even had it as a personalized license plate. The moniker fit the middle-aged man well. He was a gambler, an adulterer, a deceiver, and he was actually broken, bankrupt, and far from God. But all that changed one evening when he found himself under conviction from the Holy Spirit in a hotel room. And he told his wife, and when he called her, he said, I think I'm getting saved. And he confessed his sins that night uh, that he thought he would take to his grave. He asked the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. And for the next 30 years, this man who didn't think that he was even going to live to 40 ended up serving God as a changed man. He changed his personalized license plate from broke to repent. Because repent is what Grady did. Big or small few or many, our sin separates us from God, but he has provided the way for us to repent and to believe in Jesus. I often say, and this is not original to me, but it's so good, most people are just a prayer of repentance away from true life change. Most people are just a prayer of repentance away from true life change. What is separating you from God if you are not now a follower of Jesus, what is keeping you from trusting in him by faith? If you are a follower of Jesus, what is hindering your relationship with God? You can make it your prayer. Father God, search my heart and know me and reveal any way of wickedness in me that might contribute to my downfall or my distance from you and forgive me in Jesus' name. A prayer of repentance and faith will lead to salvation in your life if you're not saved. A prayer of repentance will lead to restoration in your life if you are saved. As I come toward a close, our hope is in the blessing of God's eternal presence among his people. That's where our hope is. Let's look now at chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 9, and then I'm going to read verse 17. He's speaking of that day, and he says, For I will then restore pure speech to the people, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. Now verse 17. 
The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Now, I've preached actually an entire message on this particular verse before from Zephaniah many years ago. Because it's amazing to think that God sings over his people. What does singing represent? Well, it ought to represent joy is what it ought to represent. Now, sometimes it represents lament as well if it's a song of repentance or some type of uh, move back toward God. But in this instance, it represents joy. And it's also translated as he rejoices over you with a shout of joy. So God's singing parallels the singing of his people in Jerusalem in verse 14. It begins with the people of Jerusalem singing praise to God, and it ends with God singing over his people. So here's the thought I want to communicate to you. God rejoices over you when your faith is in him. Sometimes we think about God in some type of terms of, of the, the rules that he set or the do's and the don'ts. And sometimes the gospel turns into a try harder, do better type of, of teaching, which is antithetical to the gospel. That's not the gospel. There's only one gospel. But that's what it sometimes turns into. And we forget that we have this God who created us, who redeems us, who sustains us, and who, who will see us safely home. And when we trust in him and we walk with him, he is rejoicing over your life. That you and your obedience to God and your faith to God and, and, and your walk with him, that you bring God joy. What a wonderful message of the transforming power of God in our lives. Now the last part of chapter 3 is mostly unfulfilled. It points to messianic prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus. The promise of peace and safety for Israel when King Jesus will be in their midst. That's going to be fulfilled when he returns to judge the world. A time is coming when God's judgment will be passed. And after a time of hardship, God will dry the tears of his people. He will comfort us and he will welcome us eternally. Now that also happens in the near term when we step out of this life and into the next. We go to be in the presence of God and we are welcomed eternally. So as I say to all of us, get ready. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to be left out of the blessing and the joy of God. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. Pastor Eric's going to come and close out our time together. Father, we rejoice today that you've given us this warning. It's difficult in many ways even to read it and to understand it. But you've been faithful to, to communicate what we should be anticipating through your word. We thank you that King Jesus has already won the victory at the cross. That everything that Zephaniah was talking about in anticipation, it's, it's been accomplished in the Messiah, Jesus, who came and lived and died and now lives again. And Father, we want our faith and our focus to be on you because you're the only one who saves. You're the only one who uh, takes care of us eternally. And I pray that every person here today would know that the grace and the mercy of God are sufficient and that they are loved and that God rejoices over their life.
God, thank you that you rejoice over us and you, you sing over us. And we thank you for that and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.